0: One of the best things you can do if you are in good health to maintain that good health is to minimize the number of times a day you are secreting insulin. You know, it does help with hormonal balancing as we get older. It's great for anti-aging disease prevention by eliminating snacking and still getting in these shorter periods of fasting as a result, even from dinner until breakfast the next morning, like 14 hours. There's tons of great data to show that, you know, for women this can reduce the risk of a lot of metabolic related cancers, like certain types of breast cancer substantially.
1: Well, that's the voice of Megan Ramos. She is a clinical educator and researcher who specialises in using intermittent fasting to help prevent, heal and reverse chronic health conditions such as obesity and type 2 diabetes. Well, could intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, as it's also known, be something of benefit for you? Let's find out. Welcome to this, the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all to have a better second half. I'm Liz Earle and I guess you know by now that I'm on quite the mission to find ways for us all to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Now, last week, we heard from Jason Fung, a physician looking particularly at obesity and insulin. And we began to touch on the therapeutic effects of fasting. So this week, I'm going to chat to one of his brilliant colleagues, Megan Ramos. Now, Megan suffered from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and polycystic ovarian syndrome and by her mid-20s she'd developed type 2 diabetes but everything changed when she heard about intermittent fasting at the clinic where she was a researcher yeah within six months of giving up snacks adopting a diet high in natural fats and low in carbs and fasting regularly for short periods she actually reversed her metabolic conditions And she began to counsel other people, especially women, about therapeutic fasting. Now she's written a fantastic book. It's called The Essential Guide to Intermittent Fasting for Women. And it's filled with all her personal and professional knowledge. So how can fasting be useful for those with certain health conditions? And why might it be beneficial for all of us, regardless of our current health status?
2: L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.
3: Want to know what it takes to make a million bucks? Check out My First Million. Every week we dive into different business opportunities and explain how to pounce on them. From one man online operations to brick and mortar strategies, we cover it all. So whether it's your first million followers or dollars, start getting inspired with My First Million wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome, Megan. It's a real privilege to have you here, and I've heard a lot about you from Dr. Fung, so welcome.
0: Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for having me on today.
1: No, I'm, I'm delighted. This is going to be a really fascinating chat. And, you know, I, I skimmed over the top lines of your story there, but I'd really love to hear about it from you in more detail. So talk to us about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and polycystic ovarian syndrome and type 2 diabetes. Gosh, you had quite a, quite a triple whammy there, didn't you?
0: I did. And they all have a a common root uh, cause. And that root cause is insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is a condition in the body and it can manifest into many different diseases. So most of us... are very familiar with type 2 diabetes. And we know that type 2 diabetes is a disease of elevated blood sugar levels. That's what a lot of people understand Mm -hmm. in the lay population. But what happens to the body that results in the elevated blood sugar levels? That elevation is just a symptom. uh, And the root cause has to do with insulin resistance. But when you look at these these other conditions, fatty liver and polycystic ovary syndrome, there are also Caused by insulin resistance, fatty liver mm. disease usually is a precursor to insulin or to type two diabetes, and polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS is literally diabetes of the ovaries. So, <laughs> insulin resistance can affect the body in many different ways, um, which is you know quite quite astounding. And some of us we do have genetic predispositions to this. You know, I was diagnosed with diabetes very young at twenty seven. But you know, my doctor said to me, well, it's just hand you were dealt. You know, your grandmother and your father have diabetes. But my grandmother wasn't diagnosed till she was 80. My father was in his 50s. Why was I being diagnosed at 27? What is like, what leads to the development of insulin resistance? And it largely has to do with our dietary habits. In North America and a lot of first world nations, our diets radically shifted in the late 70s. So, as a child born in 84, 1984, I only grew up eating the new way not the old way, which I I lovingly fashion like the leave it to beaver style days, you know, where people ate three square meals a day, they ate at home, they ate real foods largely from the farm or from their local market, none of this imported box and processed garbage. But I I ate very differently from the start of my life. It's these eating habits that actually lead to the development of this insulin resistance. So while I had a genetic predisposition, Disposition to it, Um, you know. That's why my grandmother, who had very different eating habits for the majority of her life, didn't develop these conditions until much later on. Same with my father. So, you know, unfortunately, due to when I was born, these diseases started to onset very early. So, I was twelve with the fatty liver, and I was fourteen with the PCOS, and I was actually quite slender, which most doctors and specialists were um, absolutely perplexed by because these are diseases that are thought to be associated also with obesity. But my BMI actually had me classified as underweight. Now I I understand that my body composition wasn't very good. I was tired all of the time. I didn't have the energy to keep up with all of the sports that my friends were able to do. Uh, So I didn't have a lot of muscle mass. And I had brittle bones. If we had a rainy day and I ran out into the soccer field or baseball field, I would slip and break an arm or (laughs) break an ankle. Um, So even though I weighed very little, I didn't have the best body composition. So I had a very poor um, fat to lean mass ratio. And very fortunately, the American Medical Association came out and said that BMI is absolutely a horrific indicator that's caused tremendous amount of harm for many years now. My parents were told when I was very young that it didn't make sense for me to have these conditions and well i just would grow out of it you know as i got older since i wasn't supposed to have them in the first place being so slender but that that never happened and then of course in my mid 20s it all kind of caught up and i went from being skinny fat to fat fat with type 2 diabetes uh, as a diagnosis so the weight always always catches up and even if the weight is very little on the scale it doesn't mean that you're not at risk for these diseases
1: That's really interesting. You know, you you say in the book that you you had what your girlfriends called being obnoxiously skinny. Mm -hmm. Were you actually holding a lot of body fat internally that couldn't be seen? I mean, how how do we know whether body size is an indicator of how much fat we're holding within us? Or or is that even relevant?
0: Yeah, so we typically have two general classifications of fat that uh, accumulate sort of in our trunk region that that mid region of our body one of them is subcutaneous fat and this subcutaneous fat lays above our abdominal cavity and below our skin so if you think of the abdominal cavity as a shield or a dome that protects your organs and your glands, and then there's just a space between the abdominal cavity and the skin. And when the fat accumulates there, it's called subcutaneous fat. And this is the fat that we don't like to show off on the beach. We, <laughs> it's not one of those, those things we, we love, um, love to show off so much. But And the more subcutaneous fat you accumulate, the more people are likely to point out and say oh you're visually obese but there's the fat that lies under the abdominal cavity it's called visceral fat and visceral fat is very sneaky and it's very dangerous it's able to wrap itself around our organs and infiltrate into our organs so when you look at abdominal ultrasound results or abdominal ct scan results you'll see things like fatty liver infiltration mild, moderate, or severe. And this is what on imaging tells us that an individual has fatty liver disease because of the infiltration of this fat into the liver. So this type of fat is pretty sneaky because it wraps around the organs, it fills up the organs, so you don't necessarily see it when you look at a person. So they might not have the visual belly, but their liver could be very obese. Or we see fatty pancreases or fatty spleens on these reports as well. So, the visceral fat, because of its nature, can really impact organ function, organ and gland function, and it can impact organ and gland communication. It's really important that all of our organ systems and glands can communicate with each other constantly. And the fat muffles that communication. And it's kind of like headphones on these organs and glands, and they can't hear. they don't get signals and all of this leads to the development of a lot of disease.
1: That's so fascinating, isn't it? And I think that's a really relevant point for those of us who would consider themselves a healthy weight or you know, perhaps on the, on the sort of super lean side that actually we're not immune to this and there could be a bigger risk, a kind of almost a time bomb lurking inside that we may be not aware of
0: absolutely you know it's more concerning when someone is slender with type 2 diabetes than when they're not necessarily so slender with type 2 diabetes because if we know that they're slender and they already have type 2 diabetes they likely have a lot more visceral fat which is much more dangerous in nature so they're generally end up being higher risk patients so more complications from type 2 diabetes like cardiovascular disease, for example, or metabolic cancers. So slender individuals, it's really important to understand our body composition, not rely on BMI. And if we do have these metabolic risk factors, we should take them seriously, even though the scale might not reflect very much in weight, or we could be wearing, you know, small pant size, that does not necessarily indicate good health.
1: Mm, Interesting. Now, your book is obviously all about intermittent fasting. So I'm curious to hear what led you to that. I mean, presumably you were in a very good position to spot what might be going on here, given that you're a medical researcher.
0: Yes. So I was diagnosed with these metabolic conditions very young. And my uncle actually died when I was nine from his third heart attack. So I became quite health conscious from an exceptionally young age. I was the youngest cousin, youngest grandchild. So, you know, I was very hyper aware of what was happening in my family. And, you know, I remember going to my doctor and asking her at nine years old, you know, how can I have a different outcome than my uncle? So, you know, from from a young age I took it very seriously and then of course, you know, I I was very conscious for a 12 and 14-year-old being diagnosed with these conditions, especially at 14 because they told me that, you know, I would struggle with infertility. I remember my doctor telling my parents to freeze my eggs in my early 20s before wow. I didn't have eggs anymore. <sighs> um, you know, all of this horrific stuff. So really? you know, I was I was very aware. That's what led me into the medical field in the first place. I, you know, disease prevention. You know, my, my whole family is in law. So I'm a kind of the black sheep of the family that went into the, to medicine. But then in In medicine, I realized that so much of it was just treating symptoms with pharmaceuticals and there wasn't a tremendous amount of focus on prevention and this became very disheartening to me in my mid-20s and i actually thought okay i'm going to take some time i have to continue working of course i had bills to pay but i'm going to take some time and figure out you know maybe i do go to law school because i was so saddened from watching patients pass all of the time and just needing more and more medications to control their symptoms without being able to actually help them and I was actually in that year so i dedicated the year 20 my my 26th year on this planet to optimizing my health. I worked out with a personal trainer three to four times a week. I sought out the best dietitian in all of Canada, uh, and I will definitely say the most expensive. And I uh, I followed her recommendations to a T. And all that ended up happening was me sort of feeling like I was force-feeding myself all day long, lots of fruit and lots of grains, never feeling very satiated. The more I ate, the more I seemed to wanna eat. Uh, and then I had gained about 60 pounds uh, and I had developed type two diabetes in the end, so that's what my year of wellness had to well, that, show.
1: That is not not a good result, is it? And I hope your dietitian was suitably chastened by that and it, gave it was, you a refund.
0: <laughs> it was pretty pretty awful. She just accused me of not following her guidelines. Um, it, it was really heartbreaking. And I thought, well, no wonder our patients aren't doing well if I'm following all of the guidelines that we give them. You know, in, in my mind at the time, I thought you know, many of them are. Much older, so maybe saving them with lifestyle interventions was too late. But here I was at 26; they should work for me. You know, this is the Canadian Food Guideline. This is all the physical activity movement that's recommended, but it didn't. So I knew nutrition. I I didn't know. I, I also grew up in the very modern era of fast food and easy to order food apps and and whatnot. I, I wasn't a very good cook. I could boil water for pasta. And, uh, <laughs> I could burn toast, and that was pretty much the, the mm. limitations in the kitchen. But Jason, I started working with Jason when I was 15 at that clinic. Um, he had started talking about fasting. I had heard rumors about it. You know, Dr. Fung's gone a little bit crazy. Dr. Fung thinks you can reverse type <laughs> 2 diabetes. Everyone yeah. would giggle. But as someone who at that point had worked with Jason for over a decade, he, he would sometimes say these out-of-the-box things, but he was always right. So I overheard him one evening talking to a group of his patients about fasting, and I sat in and I went through all of the emotions, anger, denial. I don't don't know what all of the phases are, but, you know, I paid a lot of money for a very fancy education at one of the top institutions on the planet. And, you know, all of everything Jason was saying just made so much sense. So I immediately started fasting and I didn't know how to feed my body because I've was doing what I thought was right and it wasn't working, but I could fast. Uh, and eventually I learned how to feed my body. But it, within starting fasting, within six months, I reversed all three of my metabolic conditions. What? Yeah. In and I, six lo- months. In six months, yes. I, I brought my hemoglobin A1C, that diabetes marker, from over 6.4 to 4.6 actually. I inverse it, no more fatty liver on imaging or labs, and normal ovarian function. And then I lost all of the weight that I had gained, plus some. And it was pretty remarkable. I became obviously very passionate about yes. this. <laughs> and yeah. uh, our our superiors at the clinic then gave Jason and I permission to start doing this with patients. As a medical doctor, he had a bit more restrictions in terms of being able to give out advice. But as someone who wasn't a medical doctor, I could give out unconventional mm, advice. I wasn't regulated by a college yeah. or a body. So together, we formed our clinic. And then he had some books come out that were very popular. And I had a 1,000 emails a day in my inbox.
1: Wow, that uh, yeah, yeah, so
0: we started an online program, online coaching. Uh, and then I transitioned fully into into doing this. And we, we partnered, we created a business. It was pretty wild um, how things went. But you know, it, it's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people prevent disease or treat the root cause of their disease. So they weren't just treating their symptoms. So every day I get to go to work and, um, you know, someone's off of insulin, someone's off of their blood pressure medications, Uh, postmenopausal woman's lost 100 pounds, something that, you know, they think is completely impossible to do. So I I love hearing from uh, this one uh, client last week who had this article published about her in a, a prominent medical publication here in the United States about how at 70 she's absolutely thriving when she was riddled with disease in her 20s. Isn't that
1: amazing? Yeah so it's very rewarding. So you talk about fasting and doing that for six months. What exactly did that look like? I mean presumably you were eating. What, What kind of fasting were you
0: doing? Yeah so I took a look at the research with Jason and part of the The objective with fasting is to go for a sustained time with suppressed insulin levels. Now, insulin is a hormone that our body produces or pancreas produces. It has many roles in the body. Most of us are aware that it helps with sugar metabolism, glucose metabolism, meaning maintaining healthy blood glucose levels. But if you develop resistance to your own body's insulin, in your body you can develop these insulin resistant metabolic health conditions so in order to restore sensitivity to the cells in your body to your own insulin you do need to suppress your insulin production so one of the ways we do that is through food you know food is probably the most unnecessary means of increasing our insulin levels. Insulin does need to be produced for other bodily functions throughout the day, but the requirements are very minimal. Looking at it with Jason, you know, it showed that you had to keep your insulin pretty suppressed for about 24 hours in order to allow for some cellular repair and some cellular healing to occur. And during that 24-hour period, you could consume some liquid beverages, water, of course, herbal teas, black coffee, a a bit of broth was fairly negligible uh, in terms of raising insulin levels, but all of these fluids that were consumed had to have a negligible impact on your insulin levels. Levels. First, I just started cutting one meal and, and doing 16 or 18 hours of fasting every day. Uh, for me, it was easiest to cut out breakfast and my blood sugar levels were highest in the morning time like most diabetics are. So I was able to bring those down naturally through activity in the morning and then I'd have lunch and I'd have dinner. And once I got comfortable with that, then I started skipping lunch and would just have dinner dinner was more idyllic for me because I did live with family at the time, and it was the main sort of staple meal in the household a day. So I would just largely work through my lunch or go for a walk, enjoy some fresh air, and then I would have my meal at home. And I did that three times a week. Eventually, I started skipping dinner periodically too. And I carried this on for about six months, and that's when I was able to reverse all my conditions.
1: Interesting. And, you know, that that is quite hardcore, but obviously you were treating quite serious health issues. Where do you end up now? I mean, is that a prolonged program? Is that permanent? Or do you now scale back to, to do this sort of sixteen eight eight or, or whatever the period is for you?
0: Well, it's been 12, 12 years uh, since my initial period of time fasting. The first six months were quite intense we call those fasting strategies therapeutic uh, and we treat them like a therapy the the idea is that you're able to reverse your condition successfully or treat your condition with a therapy and not need it for life so after that six month period I largely went back to eating two meals a day for the majority of the last decade Uh, recently I I am quite pregnant (laughs) quite pregnant right right now (laughs) okay Um, congrats thank you <laughs> so I am I'm eating three times a day because my my digestive system doesn't let me eat too much at once. And I, I am a bit more hungry growing this baby than usual. And everybody's very pleased. The baby is a wonderful size. I've gained the optimal amount of weight. So, you know, eating three times a day hasn't blown me back to being some unhealthy metabolic person. So it's really about disease reversal and being able to go back to more normal structured eating once you've reversed your disease. There's a couple of things, you know, we really encourage people, don't go back to snacking or grazing. We're not cows, we're not designed to eat all day long. And to learn how to fuel your body properly. And that can vary for individuals. Some individuals do better on more plants. Some do better on more animals. I'm kind of down the middle. I I like my plants and animals and and feel good on both. And, uh, you know, I shop at a lot of farmer's markets. I buy directly from the butcher or the fisherman at the farmer's markets as well. Um, So trying to eat a little bit more. Uh, authentically rather than Mm. eating ultra refined and processed foods by nature.
1: That's that's a really a really good word actually, I think, authentic eating. I'm interested that you are using intermittent fasting kind of as a therapeutic tool. You you frame it in that way rather than a diet per se. I mean, we're used to kind of the narrative of people easily, you know, oh I've fallen off the bandwagon with a diet. But you wouldn't think to not take your medication for a disease, would you, for example? So is it kind of you need to do this strategy because this is a treatment plan, this is not Simply a diet, in inverted commas.
0: Absolutely. I mean, our our diets that we have done for fat loss, for example, have just. Constantly failed. They're all based on the same principle of calories in, calories out. They're just packaged differently with different names or there's points or there's shakes or there's meals plans. But at the end of the day, they're all the same. So you're going to get the same results each and every time. And historically, 95% of diets do not work in the long term. So we've just associated them with failure and the expectation of failure. So that's one of the reasons why we don't like to phrase it as a diet, but it is a therapy. The middle belly obesity is due to a metabolic disease. The side effect of treating that metabolic disease is the fat loss. So you've got to treat the underlying metabolic health condition. So it's not just about losing weight and looking better in a pair of jeans or feeling more confident on the beach on vacation. It's about treating the metabolic hormonal imbalances that are causing disease and causing that obesity. So you, you do need to think of it as such. And we like rephrasing it as a therapeutic treatment because you would take, say, your thyroid medication every day, or you would go to chemotherapy a few times a week. And we do go to the dentist, you know, every six months or so for a checkup. We, we we do these things of a the therapeutic nature to keep disease at bay or pre- prevent or treat disease. So we need to look at this as the same thing. And uh, I think so many people also associate diets with lifespan. I can't tell you how many patients or clients we've had that have dieted for over 50 years. And no one should be in a treatment (laughs) treatment for for that for that long. So we'd like to uh, shift the mindset and reframe it. So people just don't lump it in as a dietary failure. And we find that that really helps with compliance because it is a big ask and most people are out there navigating fasting in a society that's very counter fasting
1: yeah interesting now we'll come on and talk specifically about hormones particularly especially in relation to women but let's just cover off the little bit about weight loss what is it then about fasting that is aiding weight loss in particular is it just about having fewer calories or is it a little bit more of a nuanced relationship here
0: It's very hormonal in nature. It actually has nothing to to do with caloric intake. So in general, people have obesity because they have toxic levels of insulin in the body. And insulin acts as a guard for our body fat, preventing us from losing it in the first place. So when we fast long enough, we suppress our insulin levels long enough that we're actively able to burn our body fat but it's it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So when we think of calorie restriction diets, we reduce our caloric intake by a certain percentage. So imagine your household income is reduced by 30%. So 70%, you know, still a good amount of income, but it's a major change to your household to have your income reduced by 30%. So maybe for the first month or two, you overspend and you go into a bit of debt, but eventually you learn how to cut costs, maybe transportation, entertainment, dining. You go through all these various systems that you have and you cut costs and you learn how to acclimate to having a lesser income, and then you stop going into debt. It's very similar with calorie restriction. You reduce your caloric intake, if you think of the calories as metabolic dollars, and at first your body's overspending and you lose some body fat, but over time your body doesn't want you to waste away. So what it does is it says, okay, we're still getting 70 percent Of our income, we know how to budget off of that. We can absolutely sustain life on that amount. So we're going to cut costs to cognitive, respiratory, reproductive functions to our different systems, and then our metabolism slows down, and we stop losing we stop losing weight, and then we start to feel pretty awful. And this is where people stall, feel awful. They're not losing weight anymore. They don't feel good, and they you know, end up eating uh, all of these other foods or going back to their previous way of eating. With fasting, you're literally giving your body nothing. So it can't figure out how to budget on nothing. Like Maybe you give it 35 calories from a cup of coffee, 40 calories from a cup of broth. It's all fairly negligible. So your body then has a nervous system hormonal response. So it activates our sympathetic nervous system, which then in turn produces these counter-regulatory hormones, which allow us to access our bank stores. So our fat cells. So these counter-regulatory hormones, noradrenaline, human growth hormone, they open up our fat cells and they liberate free fatty acids for us to fuel off of. And sort of one of the great things about this is that we've got a lot of money in our fat banks. <laughs> um, so if our daily caloric expenditure or metabolic caloric expenditure is something around say 2,500, just a random number, then we've we've got that in that banks. So have Bill Gates money in our fat cells. (laughs) So we don't have to start cutting costs. Our body says, oh, no, you know, Megan's got plenty of good fat. So we can get that whole $2,500 today. And the noradrenaline and human growth hormone facilitates the release of those funds. So this is why when we look at randomized control trials in medicine, they're the gold standard, albeit they're not without their faults, nothing's perfect. But that compare true alternate daily fasting to calorie restriction, we always see the fasting group, there's no change in metabolic rate, there's no change in lean mass, lean mass is Well, preserved and maintained versus in the calorie restriction group, we see a clinically significant reduction in resting metabolic rate every time. We see less fat loss. We see less maintenance of lean mass. All of these RCTs that have come out, and a lot of them, you know, in the last 15 years have come out replicating the same findings uh, that we do not see this catastrophic loss in, in metabolism. We have no change in metabolism with fat. We get more fat loss. We see more lean mass retention compared to traditional calorie restriction diets. And it's all due to this uh, n- nervous system response and the production of these counter regulatory hormones. Mm.
1: So your book is called Intermittent Fasting for Women. Uh, Part of the subtitle is Balance Your Hormones. So then what are the nuances of the female body that might mean that we have to think about fasting or its effects differently perhaps to male bodies?
0: That's a a great question. So insulin as a pretty much a primary culprit in both men and women. As women get older, our ovaries do not produce sex hormones like they did when we were younger. Our adrenal glands do pick up the slack somewhat. We live in a day and age of chronic stress, so our adrenal glands tend to be quite exhausted. So the output of these sex hormones from our adrenal glands is minimal to start with and then further suppressed by adrenal exhaustion due to our hectic lifestyles. So women at a certain age, um, when we start going through menopause and postmenopause, we don't necessarily have these sex hormone nuances to contend with. So women most of the time can fast just like men uh, at the same rate, same approach, same, you know, recommendations and achieve the same results as men. Um, you know, of course, we're uh, were big help, uh, or we think that taking some hormonal supplementation, bioidenticals, can be very helpful. Women as they do get older in some cases, but it, there's less nuance actually. And I think most postmenopausal women think that they are they're doomed. And 70% of the people I work with are postmenopausal women and they're losing 100 or 160 pounds left, right, and center. Really? So um,
4: wow, that's there's,
0: amazing. there's a lot of hope. So yeah. the lack of there of sex hormones and the different imbalances that can occur throughout women's life, it doesn't play so much of a role for postmenopausal women. As a lot of older women who are still going through hormonal changes tend to have quite dominant estrogen levels that can contribute to insulin imbalances as well. Uh, Addressing insulin imbalances through strategies and working on dietary strategies with these uh, women can often help correct some of the imbalances with estrogen, bring it down to normal levels. As we accumulate body fat as well, our body fat produces a type of estrogen called estrone, which can further throw off our hormones and create imbalances as we get older and create this estrogen dominant state that leads to insulin resistance. So losing fat can help overcorrect excess estrone production in the body and therefore affect all over estrogen levels. We tend to fast that group of women quite similarly aggressively to lose body fat, but there's a lot more dietary strategies that we implement. And then in younger cycling, women, you know, our hormones change every, every week, and our ability to fast and our need to fast can vary every week. So women who do have cycles, our our monthly cycle is typically divided into two parts, the follicular phase, uh, it's punctuated by ovulation, and then we have our luteal phase. And during the follicular phase, estrogen is a more dominant hormone. And in the a follicular phase, progesterone is the more dominant hormone. Progesterone is a very appetite driving hormone. Estrogen is a bit more of an appetite suppressing hormone. So this is why fasting tends to work pretty well in cases of a little bit too much estrogen, we're able to fast fairly aggressively. But women who cycle find it very easy to actually fast during this follicular phase because of the high estrogen. And then the hormonal shift that happens in ovulation, progesterone becomes dominant and that is a very appetite driving hormone. And this is for evolutionary purposes. I mean, after ovulation, our bodies anticipate fertilization and implantation of that egg in the future embryo. So it wants to both up on nutrient stores and whatnot, so we're hormonally wired to want to eat more to help with this process. And eating more helps support progesterone production in the second half of the cycle as well, whereas fasting can suppress it a bit. So if fertility is the goal, we don't want to be suppressing progesterone levels in the second half of the cycle. So women who cycle typically do more aggressive fasting in the first half, and they'll do less aggressive, more of those 16, 18 hour fasts, focusing on really great nutrition in the second half of their cycle. And we do that all the time with a lot of younger women with PCOS looking for assistance with fertility, women at my age or a bit older, looking for help with PCOS and fertility. Uh, and we usually can get most women pregnant within about a six month period, <laughs> so. Wow, it, it, and you're,
1: you're, you're <laughs> living proof of that. Well, stay there, Megan, because I definitely want to continue this deep dive into hormones. So many of our listeners here are midlife and beyond, many of whom will be replacing hormones with HRT, for example, which we talk about at length on this podcast. So let's drill down to that in just a moment.
2: L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O, soldegeneiro.com, and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.
3: Want to know what it takes to make a million bucks? Check out My First Million. Every week, we dive into different business opportunities and explain how to pounce on them. From one-man online operations to brick-and-mortar strategies, we cover it all. So whether it's your first million followers or dollars, start getting inspired with My First Million, wherever you get your podcasts.
4: And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
3: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing... Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. I bet you get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. Sold! Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: So, Megan, I talked there about hormones and different stages of life. It's absolutely fascinating what you were saying about pregnancy and younger women. Let's look at midlife and beyond. So we know that as midlife women, we're losing our estrogen. Mm -hmm. We know it's so health protective. And there's, you know, increasing studies to show that it's really beneficial to, to be replacing for all sorts of reasons. You know, Alzheimer's risk, brain health, heart disease, all of that. If as midlife women, we are replacing our estrogen with a body identity, You know, b seventeen estradiol estrogen. We're putting ourselves back into estrogen rich situation for the body, and that's consistent. We're not cycling, we're not having menstrual periods, so we are taking that every day. Mm -hmm. What would the landscape then look like for a menopausal woman who is replacing her estrogen?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a huge fan. I don't know why so many women choose to suffer as they get older when we have these great bioidentical options. I'm electing to take bioidentical progesterone voluntarily throughout my pregnancy for, for various reasons. I'm a huge fan, a huge supporter of it. And we really encourage our community to investigate it further. Um, but the because it is so consistent without the cycles, there are some ebbs and flows that still happen with women. Sometimes women, even though they're not having monthly cycles, still feel very much these ebbs and flows. And sometimes the they'll structure their fasting then sort of around the moon cycle. And they'll use the, the moon cycle to do more aggressive fasting for the first half and less aggressive fasting for the second so half. So you
1: you would eat less, you would have a longer fasting window, what, when there's a full moon or when there's a new moon? And
0: when there's a new moon. it's so Some women will, will do that, but I'll say most women find it to be pretty constant. So we're able to stay on the same fasting regimen, Quite regularly, sometimes as women are acclimating to taking new hormones, there's more variation until they've reached a period of you know three to six months where they've sort of stabilized at a good place and are, are reaping all of the positive benefits of taking those hormones. But we don't find there is as much fluctuation as there say would be in a twenty six year old. Yeah.
1: So for midlife women on HRT, the bottom line is you, you find the window that works for you, whether it's 16-8 or 12-12 mm-hmm. or 14-10 or, or whatever. And that's what you're sticking to on a daily basis rather than having these extreme periods of prolonged fasting.
0: Y- yes. So it you know, it, in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, it ends up being more consistent across the board. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. How about using
1: fasting then to treat young women with with polycystic ovarian syndrome? You have talked about that. You're obviously sitting here pregnant, which is wonderful. Having come through, you know, so much yourself, how can fasting help with infertility?
0: So a lot of these younger women, and it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, we see women there are 22 who have never had a period, or you know, lost their period for a few few years because of PCOS, and in younger women, a lot of these sex hormone imbalances are largely driven by excess insulin. So Jason and I tend to have a bit more of an unconventional approach compared to many other colleagues in the integrative or functional health space. A lot of them try to get the hormones as balanced as much as possible, but if the insulin's always left out of check, the the, the hormones are always going to be kind of wild and all over the place. So Jason and I have always just gone to sort of the root, and we've treated the insulin. So we'll literally treat it. 22 year old who hasn't had a period like she's you know a a 72 year old type 2 diabetic male or female and we implement the same fasting approaches but usually within three to six months these women start having periods and they start having regular cycles and as they start having regular cycles then of course we modify things but even doing aggressive fasting on a consistent basis at the start we do see that their progesterone becomes elevated which is great because many of them are progesterone deficient in the first place. Um, you find their sort of the, the relationship between estrogen and testosterone, all of that gets balanced out quite nicely. Well, it tends to be issues there. Sometimes there's excess testosterone, sometimes there's not, sometimes there's excess estrogen, sometimes there's not. It depends on the particular case. And PCOS, a lot of very skinny PCOS individuals have high testosterone. Uh, a lot of more overweight PCOS individuals individuals they tend to have less testosterone but more estrogen so this is why sometimes you know people get acne or facial hair sometimes they don't um, with PCOS, so it, it's quite fascinating. But we will see these hormones, the FSH and LH, all start to balance out. The AMH uh, start to come down. Um, so we know they're not producing excess follicles every month, even though they're not ovulating. So we see this transition happen. And usually, uh, Jason and I, we had this one patient to had not had a cycle twenty-two years. Month four of fasting, she had her first period, and she's actually. In her late 20s now married and just looking to start a family she's just one of the the we we still stay in touch on social media all of the time um she's just absolutely lovely and she is in great great health to be starting a family um after her wedding this fall so we're very excited for oh her.
1: great news story so moving on then from talking about hormone help We have talked a lot about fasting kind of, you know, specifically for various illnesses, but what about more generally, you know, to what extent should we all be buying into this as a preventative medicine, even though we might be in, you know, pretty good health right now?
0: One of the best things you can do if, you are in good health to maintain that good health is to minimize the number of times a day you are secreting insulin. So this means trying to avoid snacking and grazing. So if we produce insulin at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that's fine. Or breakfast and lunch or lunch and dinner, however you may structure your day, that's totally fine. But minimizing the number of times a day we produce insulin, you know, it does help with hormonal balancing as we get older. It's great for anti disease prevention, by eliminating snacking and still getting in these shorter periods of fasting as a result, even from dinner until breakfast the next morning, like 14 hours. There's tons of great data to show that, you know, for women, this can reduce the risk of a lot of metabolic related cancers, like certain types of breast cancer substantially. So we do, even in these shorter periods of time fasting, if we're in good health, we activate this physiological phenomenon called autophagy. It's a cellular recycling phenomenon in the body where our body will, when it's activated, it will hunt damaged and old cells and proteins and repair them and sort of of recreate, reinvent them. So then we have healthy cells and proteins.
1: So what's the difference then between fasting and autophagy?
0: One of the ways autophagy is induced is by fasting. So at a certain period of time in a fast, by restricting nutrient intake, you're able to activate this physiological process of cellular recycling. So when we're fasting you know, for a lot of our intensive purposes that Jason and I do, it's to lower and treat insulin resistance and insulin-related issues, so more hormonal. But this physiological phenomenon that's triggered by fasting is just an added bonus. And
1: How, how long do you have to actually fast for to trigger autophagy?
0: That's a very good question. Uh, <laughs> Can and you
1: answer it? I'd it, love to know. It's, uh, <laughs>
0: so it, it depends. More metabolically unhealthy individuals tend to not experience it for longer periods of time. So people who do carry excess weight around their waist or have that visceral fat, things like fatty liver, PCOS, type 2 diabetes, a lot of the data that's available shows they're not really starting to activate that process until about 24 hours into a fast. Individuals who are healthier, there's some data to show that, you know, even several hours into a fast, you're able to start activating autophagy. So really metabolic health status seems to play a huge role in this. But if an individual is healthy and they're doing sort of these 14 or 16 hour fasts on a regular basis with two or three meals a day, they are going to be experiencing quite a bit of really? autophagy. And we we can't. fantastic. Yeah. That's,
1: that's such great news. It's kind of almost a win-win, isn't it? Kind of the healthier you are. Mm-hmm the easier it is for you to do it and the more benefit you get.
0: Absolutely. We can't measure it very easily right now. I uh, can't go into a, a lab or a doctor's office and measure your rate of autophagy, but you can see it. You know, people say you look younger. C, uh, C-section scars. I love women showing me their C-section mm. scars because they improve yeah, so, me. so dramatically. And, you know, I had this one mom of three, uh, three C-sections. And <laughs> then we were on a Zoom call and she started to pull down her, pants I thought oh my gosh what's going on um what's what's about to happen here this is this is getting weird um but she she stopped uh (laughs) before it got crazy yeah
1: okay before it got too weird uh, yeah she showed
0: me her c-section It was barely visible and she's like this is after having babies yeah but how on earth is autophagy
1: affecting the appearance of surgical scarring what is going on
0: Yeah, so they're just essentially scar tissue, so old and damaged cells and proteins. So when we're in an autophagy state, The damaged and old cells get repaired Uh, and um, they're not generating new cells, but they take the cells that are there they sort of break them down and they reconstruct them. So they are healthy and functioning again. Yeah, it is fascinating,
1: isn't it? Do you have any other hacks before we go to the kind of help with the fasting or the autophagy process for somebody thinking, I so need to do this, you know, is there any kind of quick fixes or little handy hints you could impart?
0: The best thing is just to get back to your meals, cut out snacking. embrace things like herbal tea, sparkling water to help suppress your appetite in between your meals and then slowly over time starting to reduce your meals until you get your desired results or outcome.
1: Megan absolutely fascinating huge success with the book I think it's going to be a riveting read for all of us not only for those with metabolic health issues that we're wishing to fix which is obviously going to be crucial but for kind of ongoing health and and longevity it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you thank you
0: oh thank you so much Liz I, I appreciate being able to share to your audience today
1: Wow, what a totally, totally good news conversation. Megan, huge thanks again for taking us through just so much fascinating science. I suspect that's the kind of conversation that I personally want to go back and listen to again and again and make even more notes. You know, I have become a fan of intermittent fasting and, you know, as a midlife woman on HRT, very pleased to hear that I can just do this kind of regular, I don't know, 12, 12 you know, 14, 10. And if you listen to Jason Fung's episode from last week, you know, he was very clear when I asked him what proportion of benefit we got from intermittent fasting. I mean, we were obviously talking mostly about insulin resistance in that chat. You know, he said it was 70%. And now I can fully understand why, you know, with Megan's explanation. And, you know, modern food processing, I mean, it just has so much to answer for, doesn't it? you know, I think, Megan, you know, watch your back because the the food industry is not going to like you guys because it's saying, don't buy this, insert rude word, don't buy this rubbish, you know, just eat real food and eat less of it. And again, that's very empowering. We don't have to actually do anything. We don't even have to go and spend lots of money on stuff. In fact, it's actively not doing and not spending so it's cheap slash free to do fasting and potentially so much benefit. Absolutely brilliant. Well, what about you? What do you think? Has that myth busting maybe made you consider fasting as a lifestyle, not just a therapy, but maybe an ongoing lifestyle? Do let me know. You can contact us. We are at Lizelle Wellbeing and I am at Lizelle Me personally. You'll find both the team and me there very active on Instagram and a little bit on Twitter as well. And of course, if you haven't already, do please listen to last week's episode with Megan's wonderful colleague, Dr. Jason Fung. A.K.A. the Godfather of intermittent fasting, and if you fancy listening to that or any other episode ad-free, then do subscribe to the Lazar Wellbeing Show Plus, which is on Apple Podcasts, over there. For a small monthly fee, you will also get 24-hour early access to those ad-free episodes. And just a quick personal request from me: actually, reviews matter. So if you've enjoyed this episode or any other of my weekly podcasts, it really would mean such a lot if you are able to take just a brief moment to leave me a short review on whichever platform you're using to listen to me right now just a few lines but they do really help others find the show and perhaps get the help and the insights that they might find interesting and helpful too so thank you well that's it for this week until the next time we chat go very well goodbye The Liz well Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is produced by Anoushka Tate for Fresh Air Production with additional production
2: support from Ellie Smith. L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.
3: Want to know what it takes to make a million bucks? Check out My First Million. Every week we dive into different business opportunities and explain how to pounce on them. From one man online operations to brick and mortar strategies, we cover it all. So whether it's your first million followers or dollars, start getting inspired with My First Million wherever you get your podcasts.